Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. When acclaimed Irish author Colm Toybin came through the Bay Area in the fall of 2014, it was for the premiere at American Conservatory Theater's Geary Theater of his play Testament. At the same time, he had a new novel, Nora Webster. I had a chance to sit down with Colm Toybin in the KPFA studios the afternoon his play opened, October 27, 2014, to discuss both his new novel and his work as a playwright. My guest is Colm Tobin, whose novel is titled Nora Webster. Colm Tobin is the author of several books, including Brooklyn, Mothers and Sons, The Master, Collection of Stories. I interviewed you about Empty Family. More recently, a memoir published, I think, only in Ireland called A Guest at the Feast, essays titled New Ways to Kill Your Mother, an upcoming book on Elizabeth Bishop. Colm Tobin is the playwright for Testament, running at ACT through November 23rd. It's based on a novella titled Testament of Mary and played first in Dublin in 2011, later on Broadway, nominated for a Tony Award the day that Colm was informed that the show was closing <laughs> after 43 performances. It's a one-woman show. Nora Webster tells the story of a widow, a middle-aged woman in her 40s with four children, two of whom have left the house, two younger sons. It takes place in the 60s, and it's actually very specific as to when it takes place, but you have to read between the lines. When it starts, we don't know when it is, and we sort of have to figure it out ourselves. And then events occur, and if you look them up online, you could find out exactly what the dates were. This was a deliberate decision on your part, I guess. Yeah, I was more interested in portraying a sensibility under certain pressures than I was a society or, or politics or public events. There's a moment in the book where they're going to watch the movie Gaslight with Ingrid Bergman and the son asks her, what's it about? And she says, it's about a woman in a house. And I suppose Nora Webster is about a woman in a house. When I did some research, I found out that her son, Donal, is your age. There's another son who I think, guess, is based on your brother. And you dedicate the book to your mother and your brother, which means that there's a great deal of autobiographical information here. How much of this book is autobiography? I suppose if it, if it were a tapestry, it's made up of two types of wool. One is memory and the other is imagination. It's not a memoir. It's not an autobiography. But there are scenes, total scenes that are from memory. Then I needed something else for the novel. And I added something that, that hadn't happened. I am using a particular period because I know the period. I didn't have to go through the newspapers every day 
or do research on what people were wearing in 1969 and 70, 71. I mean, I knew what that was like. So I was working from memory a great deal. I suppose of all my books, it's the most personal in that sense. And this is also, I guess, a tribute to your mother. How close is Nora Webster to your actual mother? My father died when my mother was 46, and she had no money um, Ireland in the late 1960s, and she had to start her life again, and she had to go and find work. But that wasn't the important thing as much as nobody really knew. There was no blueprint then for something like grief. Nobody knew anything about it. Oddly enough, it wasn't discussed. So she had to do it all on her own, make it up as she was going along. And sometimes she was fine, sometimes she wasn't. She found ways of managing. And then as the years went by, she really did manage very well. So I was using all of that idea of gradation, of you know, nothing happening suddenly, of much gradual change. And then suddenly the gradual change would go backwards rather than forwards but then it would go forwards again. And so I was writing about those few years when somebody has lost their husband, how they deal with that. And a novel is very good for that because you can, you can get that slow change where the reader begins to notice things that Nora herself is not noticing, that for a while there's been no mention of the husband or for a while she's been distracted by something and then further things. And so it's... Um, it, there, there is an actual serious plot or story in the book, but it's hidden. But it's also laid out in such a way that it's chronological, so we follow her every day, and it's very matter-of-fact, so you have to look past the surface. You made a choice to make this close third person rather than first person. Yeah. In other words, it wasn't to be written in her voice, but I wanted the reader everything is from her perspective. So I wanted the reader to slowly enter into her spirit and begin to see things and even sometimes see more things than she sees. But see, so everything is told from her side. So that was the aim of the book, to get a sort of intimacy with the reader, which often first person, if you use a first person voice, you're actually creating distance, oddly enough, from the reader as much as you're, I mean, which may be necessary for a certain book for this one. I wanted to move her and the reader close to each other. What, what makes you think first person in the I saying I did such and because such? Because it's someone else's voice. It's never your voice. You're listening to someone else. It's the otherness of the person you're noticing in their tone and the textures of their sentences. Whereas in this, because the writing is so plain, uh, you know, that you don't notice any flourishes in the sentences, for example, and also you see everything from her eye. So slowly her eye becomes the thing you depend on rather than her voice. And you can almost become her at certain times as she sees. Whereas if you're listening to her, if it's first person, you notice her as different to you. Whereas I want you as the reader and her to actually almost merge at certain points. And that's why when external events come in, they come in in the way that Nora would see them. So we learn about Belfast and Derry. Yes, there's no author telling you things. Oh, now this was the year, you know, something else happened. Everything is from her perspective. And if on some level, column is donal, if on some level that's the case, then you're writing in a sense, I mean, obviously donal is fictional, in a sense you're writing about yourself through your mother's eyes in a weird way. Yes, that's right. Because at that age, my father died, so I'm 12 when he dies. 
And what happens, I develop a very sharp way of noticing and remembering so that I began to watch her very carefully without even knowing I was doing it, listen to everything she was saying. So my memory for what happened is really almost perfect. So yes, that there's a hidden author who's that little boy. Of course, he takes photographs. He's not going to become a writer. He's taking these blurred, strange photographs. And he's obviously quite disturbed in some way or other. And nobody is noticing that about him. He just seems a sort of distant little early teenager who's in, who happier in a dark room developing photographs than in the light. And on some level, the fact that you were gay put you in that position. Yes, that's also in, in a way buried in it too, that, that this child is taking nothing for granted because he's lost his father and because that, that, in, that sexuality thing is already there and so that nothing, he can take nothing for granted. So he watches the world with great wariness and um, exactitude. Were you close to your aunt as he is? Yes. That's an interesting point in Nora Webster, Colm Tobin, because we know something is going on because we see it through Nora's eyes, the relationship between Donal and his aunt, but we never see it exactly in the same way that a person never would. No, you know, in other words, you never see the two of them together right. because Nora must be there for everything that's happening. But, but there is an element of a sort of fairy tale about it. In other words, that the aunt who has no children of her own almost manages to sort of lure Donal away from his own family in, into her life. She builds a dark room for him without consulting anybody. One Christmas she just says, well, I built a dark room for Donald, meaning he will be down in her house now more than he's in his own. And she will know things about Donald because she'll talk to him and ask him questions all the time, whereas the mother is sort of busy with other things. So there is a, sort of almost a tussle going on between the two women over Donald, over which of them owns Donald. The Guardian wrote in, in a review that that particular reviewer sensed that because of Donal's distance from everybody and Nora's distance from everybody, on some level, the two are very much alike, which, if we go back to Colum and his mother, creates an interesting parallel that may or may not have been conscious for you. It wasn't conscious. I mean, all I was trying to do was to give the reader a sense that Nora isn't noticing Donal, her son. She really doesn't notice him. She thinks he's all right, but he's noticing her. And so it comes up later in the book where she suddenly realizes, I almost know nothing about my son, his feelings, th things he's been going through, but he knows everything about me. And that's the strangest, where almost the mother-son has been turned around and he's become the watcher over her rather than her, the watcher over him. He also has certain anger toward her for various reasons. For you, in writing the book, dealing with whatever old angers you might have had, did they come up? No, um, in, in the sense that I was trying to see everything from her side. And um, therefore, it's not a novel in which I'm sort of blaming anybody for anything. I'm trying to extend my sympathy to all of the characters in this book. And that includes Nora Webster, even though there are times when the reader, I think, is entitled to judge Nora Webster and think, well, 
what she's just done is completely thoughtless. But she doesn't know that. It's not deliberately thoughtless, meaning it's even more thoughtless than that. And other times she's completely loyal. She's unpredictable. You can never tell what she's about to do. Whereas Donal, oddly enough, despite his distance from everybody, has an odd stability about him in the way he watches and notices and uh, moves around the house. What I'm talking about is a family dynamic that has been deeply affected by the death of the father. Yeah. Where everyone's role has oddly shifted as though the two boys worry about her more than she worries about them. But then sometimes she does worry about them and worries too much about them so that nothing is stable in this world because they have all been unmoored by loss. Before we went on the air, uh, I mentioned that my mom had passed away in about a year ago and that it was sometimes difficult to read. And you responded by saying that it was sometimes difficult for you to write. You had to stop. I wrote the book over a period of about, to be accurate about, I started in, in the spring of 2000 and I finished it in the fall of 2013. So that's 13 and a half years. And obviously I wasn't working on it all the time. I, I wrote other books in the meantime, but I was thinking about it all the time trying to solve various technical problems with the book, but also trying to come up with images that would work and rejecting other ones that wouldn't. So um, that was what was happening. I mean, it did take all that time. And yes, there were times when there was a chapter coming and I thought, I'll leave that now for a while. Which one was? Well, particularly there's a moment at the end of the book when he almost comes back to her, the husband, when I needed to get that right so that um, the reader would believe it and follow it. That, that, that was really tough, and I did postpone that for a year, every few years, you know, thinking about how it might be done. Sometimes at night I'd get an idea that I would reject in the morning. But also there is a sense of his spirit making him a palpable absence in the book rather than, for example, having a flashback where you see them married and you see what they were like together. That's not there. It can't be there because if it's there, you ruin the entire thing. I mean, it's so easy to put a flashback into a book. But I wanted him as a palpable absence in the house so that he doesn't get dramatised or seen. You really don't know what he's like. All you know is that his absence is what is filling the pages of this book in the space between the sentences as much as in the sentences themselves. And I wanted to keep that tense and there rather than taking the easy route, which would have been an easy route, really, to have in the middle a big section describing the years of their marriage. She refers back several times to, to Morris, would have said this, would have thought this, and that's exactly how we think after the fact. You know, I wish I could call so-and-so. It's yeah. the same kind of feeling. Yeah. Yes, in other words, that at the beginning, but she does it less and less. You know, I know you have to be very careful how you judge that in the book. If she does it all the time, it has no effect. For example, she hears something funny or she's getting music lessons from an ex-nun. And she thinks Morris would think this was really funny, the idea that this nun's husband, the ex-nun's husband, wears earplugs. And she'd love to tell Morris this. And, but if you do that in the, in the next chapter, you lose the effect of it. So it has to happen only sometimes. The scenes that you said you almost took from your own life, did she take singing lessons, for instance? No, she didn't. But in order to write that, I did. 
Really? You know, I, yes, I did. And just to know what that was like. No, no the singing lesson stuff is completely invented. And the return to work with that wonderful character, Francie Cavanaugh? Um, some of that is invented, but my mother did return to work. The house in Cush. We never bought it, so she didn't sell it. But we did go to the same house every year. And after my father died, we never went back. So which sequences are, are taken directly from your life? We came in one Sunday night, the three of us. So I'm maybe 12 or 13. My brother is eight or nine. And she says, look, there's a really good movie on television. There's only one channel. And I saw it years ago, and let's watch it. You know, the three of us sat and watched Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight. And, um, of course, it reminded us of us. Somehow or other, the, f- the way she was frightened, the way the house seemed to be haunted, something about her. The three of us sat there absolutely stunned by it. And we couldn't even talk about it. That certainly happened. And then we... One more where we watched, I think we just gave up because no matter what images we watched, they reminded us of the fact that our father was just dead and all that. The other one was Lost Horizon, where, you know, the idea of someone going over the horizon into death, into a place they would not, come, they would not want to come back from. So I think if you looked back, you would find in the television guide that two Sunday nights very close to each other in 1968 those two films were shown on Irish television and there were three of us in that room and we watched that. So that's, that's for example, that's, that, that's one example. Nora, she's very distant. She has difficulty getting along with her sisters and in particular with her mother. Was that part of your mother's? Yes, um, and my grandmother did say that about that when she was asked about which of her sons-in-law she liked best. She said that she liked all of them a lot and particularly liked all of them more than she liked my mother who was her daughter but I I exaggerated that slightly to make Nora into somebody who who just wasn't sugar and spice you know who wasn't apple pie who wasn't that sort of motherly figure spent her time being motherly who everyone adored people were uneasy about her people obviously liked her husband he did all the talking he was charming he was lovable and she was sort of a colder figure and uh, I thought I could do more with that in a novel where you could then start to show various things she's doing or saying that are unpredictable rather than having her doing the same thing all the time which you really can't do in a novel. Which brings up the question of uh, sometimes people say the characters kind of become themselves and do things that you don't quite expect. Was there any moment where you suddenly wrote something and go oh wow she said that well, I suppose when the younger son, Connor, when he's um, moved from, which in a, in a small town would be a very big issue in those years, an A class to a B class. And he was very intelligent. So when she goes down to an, a, a launch an, an, an assault on the Christian brothers, this woman who you've seen recently as this sort of slightly broken figure, you're broken by grief, broken by sadness sometimes, you know, broken by poverty, suddenly becomes this absolute Amazon. You know, this this exocet missile with her hair done. Then, of course, other times when she gets her hair dyed for the first time, which really did happen in the town, where in those years, women with grey hair would suddenly come out of the hairdressers, dyed blonde. And everyone at the town would know they were never blonde in their lives. (laughs) And um, but that didn't happen in the early 60s. 
nor in the mid 60s. That late was a late 60s. 60s phenomenon where obviously this this huge amount of dye were imported from some country and every including the cheapest hairdresser said, you know, you really should dye your hair. Every other woman is doing it. And so when Nora Webster does that, all she feels, of course, is fear and shame as she walks because it, it isn't a good dye. And she, she really as she walks back home, every woman is looking at her and just not looking at her, just looking at her hair. And so sometimes she's able for the world. Sometimes she's not. For you, how did it feel in a way, I'm putting in quotes, becoming a middle-aged woman in Ireland in the late 60s? How did that feel for you, particularly at the times when Nora was not your mother? Yeah, I think you should be able to imagine anything. But, (laughs) you know, let me think. The women tended to talk more than men in that world. It didn't mean what they were saying was in any way disclosure or deeply personal. But there was always talk going on. And so that, so it was always, there, there was enough that I noticed and remembered from that house to give me a basis for work. And then I would leave a great deal out. In other words, there's no reference to sexuality, to her, you know, to her. Like, sometimes her door is closed on the reader. You really don't know what she's feeling in private. It's somehow or other the things that people in the house noticed about her get into the book. So there's a constant or technical problem over how much of her do you show, how much of her do you need to show in order to give the reader a sense of a complex personality. During the years I'm writing this, I'm also starting to teach. And the teaching begins to affect me in that I'm always arguing with students over, don't give me a cliche, don't give me, if you have, for example, somebody who's gay or somebody who's middle-aged or somebody who's, you know, poor, don't give me that they only behave within in character, something that you've read about or that, that the image is so well known. It's like, for example, that someone is Irish would love a whiskey. What about someone who's Irish who doesn't drink at all? Someone who's gay who really longs to go out on discos when they're not online all the time. What about someone who's gay who never does those? You know, in other words, you keep, you, for example, stepfather is a good example. What about a stepfather who's really nice? Wouldn't that be a good story? You grew up in Enniscorthy, uh, which is in Wexford. Wexford. Yeah. Yeah. How far were you from downtown Wexford and how big was downtown Wexford? Ah, well, these are very small towns. I mean, Enniscorthy had 6,000 people. Wexford probably had 10,000. But oddly enough, Wexford seemed much more glamorous. It had a long main street full of stores and um, it just seemed different. And also, you could go there very easily. We went there quite a lot and uh, people wouldn't know you. So that lovely idea of walking along a street, which was completely new to me where everyone would know you, which they would do in the small town. And in Enniscorthy, how big was that? 6,000. 6,000 people with their store, like a couple? Yeah, Yeah, there was a downtown. But the thing about downtown was that um, because of the way the town was configured, everyone would know you, or most people would know you. So you'd walk around and you'd see so-and-so, and that's so-and-so, and that's so-and-so. So just getting out of that was often exciting. And so that's why Nora talks to her friend Phyllis, and suddenly her sister knows that. Yes, and so the fact that she's bought a record player would be discussed by her sisters, even though they haven't been in the house because somebody would have seen her 
coming out of, you know, all of that business of people seeing one another, knowing one another. And the thing about it, I had to be careful with that because you could make that into a sort of poisonous atmosphere. But it is in some way or other irritating. And then it's also nourishing. So it's not, it's, it's never stable. It protects Nora in one way. In other words, it irritates her. But I had to be careful not to make it just one of those things. Well, that becomes very clear in terms of dealing with the Gibneys and her work, and particularly the you know dreadful Miss Francie Cavanaugh, who is the office manager at at uh, the place of business. Which I'm not sure how clear we are exactly what they do. Well, it's milling. It's milling. it's milling. Okay. But I could see where in a small town it could be absolutely stultifying, particularly for the kids. Yeah, that, 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 that in other words, you, you have that idea of you, you must know your place in the town. And your place in the town is preordained almost within, within, within a class structure and within various other structures. And um, everyone would conform to that. And that could be stifling indeed. And how far was Dublin from that? Probably on the train, about two and a half hours. The troubles, you read about them, you saw them, but only when there was events happening in Dublin, which um, Nora's daughter participates in. Only when that is occurring does it really hit home, I guess. Everything else. But even so, Derry, I mean, it's a small island. Yes, it may seem like a small island um, if you measure it. But we had never been in the north. And no one we knew had ever been over the border. Really? No. So that when that happened, it was both in our country and not in our country. It came to us via television. I mean, this is the beginning of the troubles. It came to us via television. It seemed distant. And yet it was, as you say, geographically close. So I'm trying to deal with that as well, that drama between being involved emotionally and not being involved emotionally. And that is the way things went between the Republic and the North over those decades. And what's Wexford like now? Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, the, I mean, I think it's clear that the beaches, for example, are these um, beautiful, empty beaches and the sea is so clean. And I mean, the, the economy has been through a rough period, so there's a lot of unemployment. There are, are stores boarded up that I thought would be there forever. But um, it's, it's still a beautiful place. Colin Tobin, when you were working on this, you also worked on the novella Testament of Mary. Do you think a little bit of Nora seeped into Mary? I do, yes, I do. In, in, in a way, they're both about grief and years later and people not knowing even the word grief or how to recover. And so, I mean, they're not exactly companion pieces, but that they both have a certain fearlessness especially when they're under pressure. They both have suffered grief. Well, I think in the Testament of Mary, Mary really has not recovered. It's as though the thing happened yesterday for her. Whereas with Nora Webster, there's much more recovery going on all the time and change. Whereas Mary is fiercely engaged with the events of the crucifixion as though they were yesterday. And nothing will seem to lift her out of this. Yes, but there are similarities between the two. Let's talk a little about Testament. How did this novel come about? I know that you had been thinking a lot about who Mary was over the years, but what brought you to write it? And also, it's a very unusual length. It began at a party in Dublin 
you know, this was coming up to Christmas and um, I suppose parties in Dublin are places where many matters can be discussed. We, we were talking about the Greek theatre and the idea of the lost plays and fragments of plays. And I ended up saying, you know, that I did believe there was one play that was a Greek play, which was the story of the crucifixion, especially if told from Mary's perspective, that she had that funny, tragic heroine thing that gave her a, a power that all of the painters had worked with so much, in, in, in the same way as Antigone's voice could be worked with, or Medea, or Electra. And somebody standing there was the director of the Dublin Theatre Festival. And he said to me, will you write that for us as a play? And, you know, it was Christmas. And I said, yeah, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then I got a formal letter from him inviting me to do this, which would be a commission. And I thought about it and I, I went to Ephesus, which is the place in, is now in Turkey, was in Greece, that, she, that Mary is meant to have gone and where she's meant to have died. But there's no real evidence for this. But nonetheless, it was a strange time. It was out of season. I was the only guy staying in the hotel. You, you know, I went out and looked at monuments all day. But really, by four o'clock, there was nothing more to do. And you're in this empty hotel. And eventually, I started to write. The thing is that I needed to create the illusion that she only speaks once and that it's urgent. Now, for the theatre, you won't hold an audience for more than an hour and 20 minutes with a monologue like that. You really can't go into a second act, for example. So for the theatre, we were really down to something like 9,000, 10,000 words. But the problem I had as a novelist was that on the last night of the play in Dublin, I saw two guys or three guys coming up the stairs and I was at the bar and this play was over and I said, who, who are they? Oh, they're coming to dismantle the set. <laughs> Meaning that it was over. And I thought, this is like breathing on glass. You know, someone has wiped the glass. Whereas if you're used to writing books, at least books are in a library, you know, or if they're not in people's houses. And so I, went, I remember walking up through Dublin that night. I was on my own and just thinking, I'm going to deal with that. And so I went back to everything I had, and I had quite a lot of material. You know, I work in longhand. I had quite a lot of notebooks and different images we didn't use in the play. And I started work again. And so I wrote the um, book that became The Testament of Mary. And the length question is that I didn't want any subplots, side plots, or side characters, that it had to remain her voice speaking urgently that could be read by someone in one sitting, that the uh, that the thing would be sit down and read this because this this is her speaking, and you know it's not a book that you that you would have every evening and read a few pages of, and it's not going to give you moments of, for example, great anguish followed by lighter moments followed by memory. It's not going to be like a novel with textures in it like that. This is going to be direct, sharp, and urgent, and therefore it won't hold a greater length than about 26, 20, 27,000 words. So I, I was pretty happy with the length. I mean, it was exactly the length I, I envisaged for it. What prompted you to even write it to begin with? What prompted you to go and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sit down and tell Mary's story that way. There, there was a certain thing beginning with voice, I suppose, that I had been teaching the Greek plays like, like Medea, Electra, and Antigone, and was interested in that idea of powerlessness becoming power by courtesy of voice. 
that in other words, in Antigone, Creon is the is is the he's really the prime minister, he's the president, but his voice has no has nothing in it. He's no flavour because he's got control. He doesn't need to speak with flavour. But once Antigone comes out on the stage, her presence, her voice has this enormous power. I was looking at also the way that that had been used by figures like Sylvia Plath or Louise Glick in our time, um, a sort of relentless tone. And I thought I could work with that, moving Mary beyond the iconography of the gentle, meek mother, of the grieving mother, into a much older woman who was unforgiving, who was fierce, who was deeply intelligent and who was traumatised and getting a traumatised voice which would have a staccato sound. In a way, Nora Webster is what Roland Barthes would call white writing, writing without flavour, the writing that just, just seems to have been set down almost in the, in the whiteness of shock, just so plain, so ordinary, that, 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 that it's as though all colour has been drawn from it. Whereas the Testament of Mary is all colour, it's all heightened. It's all staccato. And um, I wanted to work with that tone just because, I, you, you know, I wanted to vary what I do. But Mary herself, I mean, you were an altar boy. And if we look at Nora Webster, you know, I assume like the characters there, you went to church all the time. And of course, being in a small town, church is also a place where you sit around and gossip and make fun of the people on stage. But putting that aside... There is this Catholic background to you. Mary holds a special place in societies that have known poverty or powerlessness, such as Poland or Ireland. Um, people prayed to Mary in a way they would not pray to God the Father or indeed to Jesus because Mary had been mortal. She had been a grieving woman. She had known loss, and now she was queen of heaven so that she might understand your pain. So, I mean, we said the rosary every night at home, at the end of the rosary, we said the Hail Holy Queen, which included the lines, To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears, that she would understand, and, you know, that, but she was now Queen of Heaven. So, yes, she had a very special place in the iconography and in people's faith. And um, I was in Venice, and I saw a painting. There's a painting by Titian in the Frari, and it's of the Assumption. So it's of Mary, body and soul, being assumed after death into heaven. She was not buried in the earth. All red robes, angels all around her, God waiting for her. The sky, it's the most glorious painting. It's the apotheosis of all the belief in, in her divinity almost, but certainly her sanctity. But just up the road from it, there's a painting by Tintoretto of the crucifixion. And it's all untidiness. It's a narrative painting. It's long. So, the, yes, the cross is in the middle, but all around are people with horses, people eating, people talking, people doing other things on that day. And that painting struck me very sharply. It must have had an enormous effect when it was shown first because what it was saying was on the day of the crucifixion, it, it was not that people just didn't know what this great day was going to mean for Christians in the future. People had other things on their mind. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting idea. If you could use that in fiction, the idea that for Mary, in my novel and in the play, what's happened is human. She's lost her son. She saw her son being crucified. These large questions about redemption and saving the world, they're too large for her. 
she cannot she doesn't think like that she thinks concretely and what she saw were nails thorns blood and she remembers that so it was just the distance between often the idealized image and what it might have been like for somebody who was fully human on the day when i came in here i was thinking you know we have the greek christ by Nikos Kazantzakis, you know, Last Temptation. And then we now have a kind of Irish Mary. But what struck me as you were talking before is that on some level, this is also a Greek Mary. Yes, that she comes to me from the reading of those texts rather than from anything Irish, except that the emotions surrounding her, ironically, you know, that she becomes an icon but she's no idea in, in, the, in what I've written this will ever happen. She's living in the world and she's fully human and that's what I'm interested in. She's living in a secular space, but the voice she has is a heightened voice. It's not just an ordinary woman talking. It's someone urgently speaking in snatched time and she may not speak again and she has a particular eloquence that is oddly iconic even though she isn't aware of that. Colm, Tobin, okay, so you have the play. It becomes the novella. And then what happens to bring it to Broadway? Well, Scott Rudin, who's a great producer, he read it and he wanted to bring it to Broadway. And um, he found Fiona Shaw, who is someone I had known in Ireland. She, she's a great actress. You know, it was a, it was an extraordinary period because I was living in New York. I was teaching at Columbia, and I remember one evening, and this is absolutely true, I was walking up from something else on Broadway. I'd been with a friend, and we were passing along, and we suddenly realized that they were taking down the sign for the previous play on in this theater and putting up the sign for mine. And we stood there and watched as on, a, on 48th Street, uh, just off Broadway, they, were, they started to put up in lights the title and, you know, I realized my name was coming soon. And so for those weeks, and I mean, 30,000 people saw it and I was there a lot because these were officially called previews, even though people were paying, you know, and uh, it, it, was a, it was really a strange business. I mean, I'm from a small town in Ireland and I still feel like that a lot of the time. You know, what am I doing here? And I would I would get the subway down. I would, 42nd Street, I would walk up the six blocks thinking, and I was often on my own, you know, thinking, this is the strangest thing. As I turn the corner here, I'm going to see the big sign up for my own play. As I sit in the theatre, where no one, would, no one will know me, people in general just didn't know me, all around the silence coming or moments of laughter or moments of pure recognition in this huge Broadway theatre. So it was, a, it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, it closed... But the fact that it went on at all was the miracle because it was such a huge risk to take. I mean, it's all credit to Scott Rudin because he was so brave. Around the corner was Bette Midler. You know, if you'd, you know, in other words, Broadway was meant to be dumbing down and he decided to dumb up. He decided to say, let's have something that's seriously literary with a great actress about a really important subject to do with life and death and let's put it on on Broadway. So 30,000 people saw it. And I walked away from it in the end with no complaints. And then uh, what, the afterlife coming to ACT, how did that come about? Well, I've known Kerry Perloff for a long time. Um, I knew her when I lived in San Francisco. 
I've really admired her work, what she does in the theatre. She wanted to do this for quite some time. So the, it's beginning to have an afterlife. I mean, it's it's um, it's been on in Spain. It's going to open in Madrid next month and start touring provincial Spain, which will be very interesting to see, especially in the more religious parts of Spain. Because it is not a mocking play. I, I'm not involved in laughing at anyone's religion. I'm involved in some sort of serious exploration of Mary's humanity. So if you've known her or prayed to her, therefore this is something that could interest somebody enormously who has been through that experience that I have of a Catholic childhood. So it's beginning to open and, you know, to, to be put on in other places. And it, it is, I suppose, a great part for an actress. You know, you, you need a certain sort of actress to do it. So it's going to be very interesting to see it here. The actress doing it here is, what is it, Shauna McKenna? Did you know her? Shauna McKenna is a really famous Canadian actress. And she's probably at exactly the right age and with the right sort of experience to take on something as taxing as this. You need someone who's a lead actress, who can hold the stage, whose voice and presence um, really you know, is enormous. And there is probably one of them in every country. And um, she is certainly in the position to do that now. And it'll be very exciting to see her do that. The New York production began with Fiona Shaw in a glass box. Is that correct? Yes. Are they doing the same thing here? At oh, no, 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 no. This is an entirely, I mean, I mean, this is, this is Carrie Perloff's vision. You know, <laughs> she's not, she, it's not as though she went to Broadway, saw what they did, and is bringing that to San Francisco. This is entirely her vision, her production, and it's a completely different design and completely different direction. And it also uses a different um, elements of the text. I mean, they're, they're, it's not exactly the same text because the text we used in Dublin was different from the text. We, I mean, not, not greatly different, but just there, were, there, are, there are differences between. And I left it up to the director and to the actress and the dramaturg. If, look, if there's something that isn't working there and there's something in the book, take the paragraph. You know, you, you know there's, there's no set text for this that I know. So you basically in seeing a preview, for example, you're looking at something that you haven't seen before and you haven't necessarily even worked on? Yes, that the, uh, the theatre is a collaborative form and part of the job of the writer is to stand back and say it's now time for the director, the designer, the lighting designer and the actress to do the work. My work is done. I may be able to be helpful in some way, but generally the job of the writer is to stay home, you know, you know his, is over at a certain point, mm-hmm. often over at the moment where their job is beginning. Colm Tobin, a guest at the feast is an Irish Kindle and doesn't seem to have made it to America. What's the story on this memoir? I know, just um, Penguin in the UK, it's actually in the UK as well, asked me if I had anything about 25,000 words. And I had been adding slowly in downtime, in time when I wasn't writing Nora Webster, when I wasn't writing Testament, you know, um, just adding little moments from memory, poetic sometimes, sometimes sharp, and just putting them down sometimes at night, reading them over in the morning, revising them. And I said, well, I have this as 25,000 words, but it wouldn't have worked as a book. So we just brought it out on its own as a Kindle in the UK. And um, I, I don't think many people have read it. It's that sort of lovely thing that you can bring out, almost like publishing a short story somewhere strange, 
where it has a little life of its own. But um, for me, you know, I work every day. So, I, I mean, I can't with, say, short stories. I love publishing them in out-of-the-way places where some people, I mean, I'll collect them all eventually. And with the guest of the feast, I will do more work on it at some point and publish it as a full book. And um, what is um, on Elizabeth Bishop? Elizabeth Bishop was has, has been for me a really important figure since I read her poetry first in in the early 1970s. Her father died when she was six months old. Um, her mother was incarcerated in a mental hospital from the from the time Elizabeth, the, the only child, was five, and she had to make her way in the world as a poet in a time of confessional poetry, when she really should have been writing about this and this only. And you know, she doesn't mention it at all. She writes about the world of surfaces. She writes about Brazil, where she lived. She writes about Key West, where she lived. She was a great noticer of things. She liked to be accurate about things. And there's a great withholding in her work, a tonal withholding, which I'm very interested in. And um, I found very helpful to me as I was working. So I thought it was the least I could do for her when Princeton University Press asked me if it was some writer I would like to write a book about. I think they thought I would write, want to write a book about Joyce or Beckett or some Irish writer. And I said, well, the one I'm, I'm really interested in that I would love to formulate my response to is Elizabeth Bishop. Interesting. You, you mentioned withholding and withholding is exactly what Nora Webster does. Yes, but I was also, there is also in the, in the novel Nora Webster, a sort of tonal withholding in that I'm not giving you screamy matches. I'm not giving you a Brazilian soap opera. I'm giving you someone that on the surface feeling things very, very deeply, but also not mentioning what they're feeling sometimes. So that, so that in between things, the reader gets to know how they're feeling because no one is, they're not saying how, how, how they feel. So that, that that idea of keeping things in, of feeling that maybe it's more tactful or better manners not to constantly tell people how you feel, but that give people maybe the impression of that while discussing something else. Bishop was very, very good at that. Somehow or other, as she watched nature in Brazil or as she looked at the sea in Key West in Florida, somehow or other you got from her tone that there was loss involved, that there was something or other missing and that she herself had suffered something but she didn't name what it was. And that, for me, was a really, really interesting example of something that I not only wanted to work with, but I would work with. There's also another book. You do a lot of writing. I work every day. You know? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Do, do, do I, I mean, everyone should work every day, but I'm really the only one who does. <laughs> New Ways to Kill Your Mother, Writers and Their Families, which is a collection of essays. Yeah, I mean, I, I, because I write long pieces for the London Review of Books and the New York Review of Books, for example, in the current issue of the London Review of Books, I have an 8,000-word review of the new Marilyn Robinson novel. And actually, the original of that was 12,000 words, which I have 12,000 words on that book. So it's at a certain point, I will put that into a book, you know, and with some other pieces around it that will have some sort of thematic unity. Even if I had to invent the unity for them, I will try and sort of fit them into something. But it, but it, but it just means that those pieces get collected and that readers can have them 
eventually in a book. Colm Tobin, changing the subject just a little bit, there's a quote I found, I think it was in the New York Times, in Ireland, novels and plays still have a strange force. The writing of fiction and the creation of theatrical images can affect life there more powerfully and with more stealth than speeches or even legislation. Why do you think that is? The theatre in Ireland is strange because there's so much amateur theatre, so that the plays of figures like uh, um, John B. Keynes, who wrote The Field, or Brian Friel, um, those plays were, are, are performed in every town. And um, they matter enormously to people. So the, almost the best images we have of emigration is Brian Friel's play, Philadelphia, Here I Come, or his other play, The Loves of Cass Maguire, and other plays about greed. I mean, when I was a kid, we, you know, we, we were brought to see this play, The Field, which is about a fight over a field. And um, with actors who's, who's, who, who, you know, who lived in the town, who were brilliant actors. So that, 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 that idea of the amateur theatre yeah. really matters. And a new play in Ireland can have an enormous effect on the society. And indeed, uh, indeed a novel can too, the writers. You know, we don't have Wall Street. We don't have Hollywood. We don't have an aristocracy. So that... That idea, somehow or other, of everyone being equal in a republic is still not there in Ireland. But a book, a book coming out, a new novel, I mean, a novel like this, could actually start to matter. In other words, things people had never been talking about in their lives, like loss, like losing a parent or losing um, a husband or a father, that suddenly could become much more openly known about via a book rather than via, for example, a self-help book. You know, the novel could do the work still. And that ordinary people will feel entitled to read such a book and discuss it as though it's part of their lives. So, so books and plays still have that sort of power. But not necessarily in America. I mean, you know, I, I find myself proselytizing for theater. And I'm thinking, but wait a second, why should I be, have to do that? I mean, theater is immediate, it, it's live, and in talking to artistic directors, they will say to me, the point of a good play, and good in quotes, is not necessarily it being a good play and you walk out with a standing ovation, but the conversation that occurs afterward. Yeah, that, that what you're trying to do is hit the reader's nervous system. But in theater, because people are there together you're actually hitting a group of people, a sort of communal nervous system. And that's a very, very powerful thing to do because people don't just feel whatever they're feeling alone. They feel beside them and along the row, other people are feeling it. And they go out into the world changed by that experience. But I suppose one of the problems about America is that the amateur theatre group yeah, the amateur theater movement has not happened in the same way in America. And we don't find all over every little town in Texas, for example, that there are amateur, you know, theater groups who are putting on a, like two plays every season. It doesn't happen like that. I mean, I mean, I mean, part, partly because places are so isolated and partly because people in America don't feel entitled in some way or other to participate in that. And it's a strange thing to do with class, to do with isolation, to do with the difference, the distances between the big cities and the small towns, just to do with the size of the country. 
So, yes, it's different here, which makes somewhere like Broadway very powerful in the sense that people visit New York and they suddenly find themselves at something. And, you know, something like the musical has been one of the great um, Broadway inventions. I wish I could write a musical, but I can't. In terms of that, if you're going to get amateur theater in a small town, it's more likely to be The Music Man or Oklahoma or you know, great shows, but also at the same time, war horses. Yeah, yes, in Ireland, what you'll get is as soon as the rights to a new play become available, the local actors will want to do the, will want to do the parts and people will want to go and see them. Well, what's happening in America at regional theater in particular, and I've talked to people about this, is there's been an explosion of new plays. I mean, every theater company in the Bay Area, for instance, now has a new play workshop and we're we're seeing that, but I don't see it's necessarily spreading outward in America, at least. Yes, but it will have to, you know. Yeah. Hopefully. One of the things that has changed is this new television. It's only been in the past five years, these multi-part adaptations and original material, which is, you know, almost taking the place of film. Yeah, I'm always the last to be told about things like that. You know, I mean, I remember hearing about the Internet and thinking it wouldn't work or hearing about Amazon and thinking that won't work. So with these with these multi-series, yes, I have heard about them, but I actually haven't seen any. It's a new process. And what it does is it creates the opportunity to create long form, uh, long form pieces. But again, you're sitting at home watching it on a big screen. You're not in a theater or even a movie theater. Yeah. yeah. And and people seem to buy the boxes for Christmas and sit, sit throughout <laughs> the Christmas period watching them a second time. I mean, people talk about The Wire all the time. But you have not seen any no, of I that. No, I haven't. No, I must look at them. Well, I mean, part of it, of course, is you're writing all the time. Yeah. What what have you got coming up? Well, I've got a collection of stories almost finished, and, and there's a novel I've started, so I'll, uh, and I'm working on some essays, so I'll just just continue doing all that. And I'm also teaching. Do you ever think about bringing back character? I mean, at the beginning of Nora Webster, there's, there's a kind of cameo, if you want to call it that, for Brooklyn. Do you ever think about bringing Nora Webster and her family back? Well, glancing references in another book as though they're living people in the, in the community sort of amuses me and, and seems to, yeah, so, but not in any large dramatic way, I don't think. I think once a book is finished, it's finished. Colm Tobin, Testament after it leaves San Francisco, you said it's going to be in Spain. And um, on Elizabeth Bishop comes out next year. In April. In April. And you've also got that collection of stories, which will come out, I guess, next year as well? No, not next year. I'll just have to, I'll do more work on it before then. I think, I think I've had enough books out for a while. But, you know, the, the, having Nora Webster out and the play out is, I think, enough for the moment, I think. You've been listening to an interview with Colm Toybin. His play was titled The Testament of Mary and has been performed in Australia and Spain. His book is titled Nor Webster and is available in trade paperback. I'm Richard Walensky and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theatre Podcast.